millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, folks. Some of you have been wondering where I've been for the last month. And the answer is... I've been right here all along. What you may have missed is that over the course of New Year, I transitioned the show into a kind of hybrid format where a lot of the episodes are now going out as bonus content. So you're still getting stuff on the main draw like this episode, but you're also getting hours upon hours of bonus episodes. We're talking reenactment. We're talking the American War of Independence. There's a whole mini series developing on that. Um, We're talking a continuation of the brilliant episodes with Rachel Stark on the Marshalls. We had one on Marshall Oudinot. We had one on Murat, who we questioned perhaps was all balls but no brains. And there is an exclusive new series opening up on the Peninsula War. All in all, in the last 30 days, patrons have been enjoying an additional nine hours of content. So if you want to get your hands on it head over to patreon.com forward slash the Napoleonic Wars pod, where if you sign up for £1 a month, you not only get access to that bonus content, you also gain exclusive access to a Napoleonic Wars pod Discord server, and you get a discount code with pen and sword books so that you can reclaim what you're investing in the show. It's my way of trying to give back to you. There are other tiers if you want to go higher, have a look around and see what suits you and your budget. It does enable me to continue producing more content and kind of try and turbocharge this show. So if you're missing out, you know what to do. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars podcast and a return of the anarchy. We've been going for a good 15 minutes already, haven't stopped giggling. Um, Courtesy of one highly esteemed professor, we have had a demonstration of much love between Napoleon and Wellington. Um, Memes would be created off the back of this. I shall spare you the gory details, but the details were indeed very gory. Looking at you, Alex, it's entirely your fault. We have brought together some of my favourite people in two 
installment of a debate about who is the greatest statesman of the Napoleonic era. We do this endless discussion, and I'm completely guilty of mining that for endless content, of who was the greatest soldier of the Napoleonic era. In fact, there's a whole like World Cup thing incoming in a few weeks' time dedicated to that. But let's reach for our Clausewitz. You know, war is an extension of foreign policy by other means. And I, I butchered the quote there. Apologies. But, you know, somebody, somebody will correct it. Luke is, Luke is looking as though he wants to correct me immediately. Uh, but he has himself on mute, probably deliberately to save himself um, from the, the temptation. Um, the point is that, that politics matters. And when you say that, people go, oh, politics. But politics does matter and it is important. And in the process of this discussion, we're going to uncover some, I think, amusing, highly important figures who often get overlooked or sidelined or end up being misunderstood. But I think we'll also uncover some pretty dastardly and underhand things. And the amusingness of that is surely appeal enough for you to reach for the slippers, grab yourself a bottle of wine and settle the heck down. So installment one brings together the mighty Alexander Mikhvaridze, the author of The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History and Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace. Luke Reynolds, author of Who Owned Waterloo, regular commentator, frankly, at this stage on this show. I think you were saying to me the other day that you're just going to stop adding these shows to your CV because, you know, there's just too many of them. It's just getting embarrassing for you now. The author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, part of the furniture of this podcast, um, all-round champion of the obscure. I did say to you earlier that, you know, you're not invited on this show in order to win. You're invited to broaden our minds, which was unkind of me, but essentially true. And last, but by no means least, we have Jackie Writer, author of The Late Lord, The Life of John Pitt, Second Earl of Chatham, and custodian of Popham's Ghost. And I do choose the word custodian deliberately because I do hope you have him locked up because frankly, he'll be a menace if he gets out into wider society. Folks, it's great to see you all. We could go around the room and say hello, but you've had 15 minutes of saying hello, so that would feel highly contrived. Um, so instead, we're gonna dive straight into this. The concept is the same as always. You've got five minutes-ish. I can't be bothered with the stopwatch. Um, I shouldn't say that I can't be bothered, should I? That's deeply unprofessional, but it's true. Um, to make your pitch, and then off the back of that, we'll ask you deeply peevish and unpleasant question. Actually, no, we won't. That, that's not how this show works. Um, but you get the general idea. And then we will leave it to that very reasonable forum, Twitter, to decide on a champion for this half. And there will be a second half incoming in a few weeks' time. We've got some crackers coming up. I am going to start, I think... And this is a tricky one because all of these are contenders in different ways. And I even look at Josh saying that. I think I'm going to start with Jackie. Who looks deeply surprised by this development. So I was just, I just want to hold on a second. I want to just lay out that we do agree that Napoleon is the greatest one. We're just talking about the runner-ups, right? Well, he's the only one who's got the age named after him, so I guess he wins by default. Yes, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to point two. it out, right? That's what <laughs> we do here, right, Zach? Um, Alex, and this... I gave you the choice. I literally let you choose your own contender. Don't start coming at this stage trolling my listeners. I thought I mean... it, was, it went without saying that we're talking about the runner-up. 
No, 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 Alex. We're we're talking about the people who united to beat Napoleon. <laughs> or are we? <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> He's still <laughs> laughing at them, though. <laughs> on so many levels, Josh has just knocked it out of the park on this one. Partly because I know that Josh has changed his mind and is going for a different contender. It's going to blow all of your minds, not just the people in the room tonight, but all of your minds. Um, but yes, it makes a really good point that actually, did they really unite? Were they that united? Did they like it? No, they didn't like each other. They absolutely hated each other. They didn't trust each other as far as they could throw one another. And let's be honest, that was an entirely reasonable kind of judgment on the extent to which they could trust one another. Jackie, let me stop hogging the mic. The floor is yours. <laughs> uh, thank you, Zach. Um, right, I'd like to start by saying that I'm keeping to my track record on this podcast of championing youthful overachievers. Um, last time I was on, I talked about why Mozart was the period's best composer. Um, today, I'm cheering for William Pitt the Younger as the period's greatest statesman. Uh, Mozart wrote his first composition before the age of five and died at age 36. Pitt wasn't quite as precocious. He didn't become Prime Minister of Great Britain until he hit the ripe old age of 24. But he too died young, thoroughly knackered and admittedly um, slightly pickled in alcohol at the age of 46. Um, Nobody who's spent more than about five minutes in my company will be surprised at my choice, um, but for the rest of the audience who may not have met me, why Pitt? Because succinctly, uh, it would be difficult to think of many other statesmen who have had such a profound impact on British politics of the Napoleonic or indeed of any other age. Um, perhaps this is inevitable given he was Prime Minister for nearly 19 years in total. Only Robert Walpole served longer. Um, so just to start with a brief overview uh, for those who aren't familiar with him, Pitt was born in 1759. Uh, he was the second son of William Pitt the Elder, himself a famous prime minister, which I guess makes him a Nepo baby. Um, and I'm not going to deny that the younger Pitt got to the top as early as he did because of his daddy. Um, his staying power, however, was, was all his own. Uh, within 18 months of entering Parliament, Pitt was charged with the Exchequer. He then became Prime Minister in December 1783. Um, everyone expected him to fall flat on his face, but to say he didn't is an understatement. Um, he inherited a country that was exhausted at the end of the American War of Independence. Um, Britain owed money to everybody and had the international clout of a slightly overripe banana. Um, within a decade, Pitt had pretty much got Britain's finances back onto an even keel and brushed the country up enough that it could throw its weight around again on the international st stage without being laughed at. Um, all this progress, however, came to a screeching halt in 1793 when Britain went to war with revolutionary France. Um, Pitt didn't really want war. It was bad for the balance books. Um, he spent much of the early 1790s looking the other way and saying things like, there never was a time in the history of this country where we might more reasonably expect 15 years of peace than we may at the present moment. Um, yes, he actually said that in uh, 1792. Do the math. Um, his reputation as war minister is mixed. Uh, he never really got a proper grip on global strategy. He was too optimistic about everything, but he grasped earlier than most politicians the value of a rapidly industrialising country with a global reach. 
um, his leadership carried his government and the country through crisis after crisis. Um, Pitt's speeches were by all accounts a tour de force, um, quote, that matchless eloquence which called forth unbounded applause from all who heard it, as one contemporary fanboy put it. Um, he had an eye for detail that stood him well in Parliament and in day-to-day -day business. Uh, he certainly knew all about image, propaganda and morale, which came in extremely useful during the long wars with France. On one occasion, he managed to turn a vote of confidence, uh, sorry, uh, he managed to turn a vote of censure on his war policy round so completely that he ended up leading the entire House of Commons in a standing rendition of Britain's Strike Home, which I think is pretty good going. Um, he was so literally considered to be a political giant that the most famous caricaturist of the era, James Gilray, portrayed him as exactly that, sitting astride the House of Commons playing ball with the world. Um, his unexpected death in January 1806 was an event of seismic proportions, politically speaking. Uh, his lifelong rival, Charles James Fox, said there was something missing in the world, a chasm or blank that cannot be supplied. Incidentally, there's an argument to be made that Pitt and Fox laid the structure for the modern two-party system. Of course, there's a lot of complexity here, mostly because Pitt himself left the scene so suddenly in medias res, as it were, um, that he didn't have time to shape the way his own story would get told, echoes of the musical Hamilton here. Um, Pitt had never been dogmatic, and even his closest followers didn't quite know how to view his opinions on the big issues of the day. Had he been for or against parliamentary reform, religious freedom, abolition of slavery, big shrugs all round, there's a reason Pitt is considered a founding father of both British conservatism and of British liberalism. Uh, moreover, his quashing of popular reform movements in the 1790s earned him a fearsome reputation. A book was even published a few years ago drawing parallels between Pitt and post 9-11 American British intrusions into personal privacy. I don't have time to go into the ins and outs of this here, but I will say if we're still talking about why what Pitt did 200 years ago because it's relevant today, I don't think anybody can deny the magnitude of his influence for good or bad. All this, of course, is just referring to Pitt's influence in Britain. I haven't even started talking about his international role. Even if he wasn't the greatest war minister in the world, there can be no doubt that Pitt did two things. He shaped the way the wars with France were fought and he shaped the way they ended. The first three continental coalitions were largely cobbled together by Pitt's diplomats. The four coalitions that came after his death were put together by his political successes, following his template. And the same can be said for the British diplomatic missions to Vienna and Paris in 1814 and 15. Britain's war aims were based firmly on what Pitt had decided they would be in 1793 and reaffirmed in 1798 and 1805. Pitt may have been dead by the time peace was concluded with France, but Castlereagh was speaking with his voice from his notes. Pitt's ghost still dominated politics a decade after his death and beyond too, because the men who presided over Britain into the 1830s were all self-confessed Pittites. So there you have it, a giant of 18th century political world, a guiding hand on the international tiller, a political colossus whose actions, opinions and measures echo down the years to the present day, and whose name unquestionably ranks somewhere at the top of any list of Britain's greatest prime ministers. Even if you think Pitt wasn't the greatest statesman of the Napoleonic era, he had to admit he ranks as one of the greatest. His name is remembered for a reason, and it's not just because he was a daddy's boy. Wow. Applause around the room, rightly so. This is how we start. Josh has just pulled out the Regal Wave. Um, that, that's very Josh-esque. I'm not sure the Regal Wave matches your kind of South American poncho-style cardigan, Josh. But, you know, we'll we'll deal with the, the difference between your conduct and your sartorial elegance another time. Uh, 
I'm not quite sure what that hand gesture was, but it wasn't a rude one, so we'll move swiftly on. Um, this is how we kick off a debate. Well, um, huge contender. I think you 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 say that you like kind of young overachievers, Jackie. I also think you'd like going for people who die just far too young. Um, that's that's just seems to be your your penchant here, um, and it's very striking for me as a Brit, considering the last 12 months of British politics, well, considering the last few years of British politics, where we've had the shortest serving prime minister, and you're talking about somebody who lasts for 19 years. I mean, frankly, it felt like Liz Truss was on her way out after 19 days. So... 19 you know, minutes. There is that. Um, you talked a lot about how, you know, he, th there was a degree of respect for Pitt, at least Pitt's talent on all sides. You know, they knew that he was an animal to be reckoned with. What's his international reputation like during his premiership? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I think he was very much respected. Um, uh, he had a bit of a trip up in the 70, early 1790s um, where um, he tried to um, start a war with Russia um, and it didn't go very well <laughs> and the end, uh, to cut a long story short he ended up with egg on his face um, and you shocked me um, you, you absolutely yeah. stunned me it, it, it didn't go well um, and after that his uh, international reputation was somewhat lower than it had been before um, but I think he managed to recoup that um, I'm not that uh, familiar with um, looking from the outside in, so I can't, I'm not going to stake my reputation on it, um, but I think that uh, particularly when he died, I, th I think the, 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 it was a big shock all around all around Europe, really. Um, uh, so I, th I, I certainly think he was seen as a fixture of the British political scene pretty much everywhere. And to what extent, and this is a deliberately kind of, well, what about question, but that, that's kind of what I'm here for tonight. Um, to be honest, it's what I do. Who, who am I kidding? It, it's just my default setting. Um, his cabinet, to what extent, and I, I, I can't say that I think this is necessarily a, a fair accusation to level, but it is something worth exploring. To what extent is his success also down to those in his cabinet and to what extent is it actually his ability to manipulate the sort of the power politics of the age to make sure that he's surrounded by people who can do what he wants you know who is he the big spider controlling everything or actually is he the figurehead running a ship crammed full political ship crammed full of talented individuals well, neither. Um, British cabinet politics wasn't the same as it is now in the 18th century, but it, it wasn't massively different in the sense that um, you, you didn't really, uh, you, could, you certainly couldn't call him a dictator. He wasn't, um, you know, he was responsible to Parliament and the King and, uh, you know, he couldn't just do what he wanted. Um, I mean, he was forced to resign in 1801 because he uh, unwisely tangled with the king over a, um, a matter of uh, 
religious uh, um, a religious question he wanted to put through Catholic emancipation, which was famously what uh, uh, Duke Wellington eventually would do. Um, nearly 30 years later, so you know, let's see how well that went. Um, but uh, <clears throat> so you know, he, he couldn't just do what he wanted. But um, if, if 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 you think that he he was running a, a cabinet of equals, no way, absolutely not. He was head and shoulders above everyone else, um, and everyone knew it, including the cabinet. Um, in fact, when he was out of office in uh, um, 1804 and his successor, Addington, was trying to get him back into the government, uh, Addington um, rather foolishly offered him, I think it was the Home Secretaryship, um, and Pitt just went, you know, absolutely not, you must be joking, go, go home. Um, it, he then wrote a, a fairly famous letter in which he said there should be one minister at the head of all affairs and he should also be in control of the finances. Um, Liz Truss would be laughing if she could hear that. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so um, he himself was very aware that he was, you know, a, a big figure. Um, and he did a lot um, to define what a prime minister actually is. I mean, he was in the office for, as I said, nearly 19 years, not continuously, but um, uh, that's a long time. And a lot of what became a prime, you know, associated with a prime minister was associated with him. Um, so there's absolutely no doubt that you, you can't say that his cabinet, he, he, he had a few acolytes in the cabinet who were... Um, very close to him, there was Henry Dundas, Lord Grenville, um, but even they were, uh, you know, there was no doubt, they were subsidiary. I, I could ask more questions all evening, frankly, but I'm going to throw it open to the rest of the floor. Josh, do you want to start us off on this? Uh, sure, I mean, there's, I'm not terribly good at asking piercing questions, this is why I'm not a journalist. Um, I have always been rather impressed by Pitt. He's a very impressive man. Um, I think you've covered your bases pretty well, to be honest, because the main thing you can lay against him is that he wasn't terribly, um, you know, on top of how to pull off this war with France or even, you know, <laughs> what we get out of it by being in it, really, I think is his problem. Well, let's make that the question. Do you what do you think he was trying? What do you think was it just the best out of a bad situation? What do you think Pitt was hoping for from the war? I was hoping for an honourable peace. Um, <laughs> he was hoping it would all stop um, and uh, that France would just, you know, stop uh, essentially. Um, he was asked in Parliament by his opponents, "What do you think the aim of the war is?" and he very famously replied, the aim of the war is security, um, which is quite vague when you think about it. Um, but essentially, that's what he wanted. Um, he didn't want France to be utterly defeated. That wasn't actually in Britain's interests. Um, what he wanted was for a return to stability. Mm -hmm. um, that might be a new stability. In fact, of course, it did have to be a new stability in the end. Um, he was open to that. Um, but um, it wasn't going to be a kind of stability in which France was completely and utterly destroyed. Yeah. Um, but it had to be a, a, a situation where Britain's interests at home and abroad were all covered, hence mm -hmm. security. Mm -hmm. um, very, so, nice, 
very nicely tying in with uh, your your own sort of arc there where <laughs> you know because that was what the allies in the end the responsible ones were trying to do with, yes, Napoleon's, with Napoleon's fall mm-hmm. yeah um, and I, I will still argue that the settlement in 1815 was one that Pitt would very happily put his put his name to. Um, You've literally just preempted my next question, so so nicely done. Uh, any more from Josh before we? No, no, floor over? is open. Okay, Luke, all yours. Thank you for a, a remarkable uh, rundown. And uh, I think, you know, fundamentally, uh, to a certain extent, I agree. Uh, when Zach sent me the list of who everyone was championing, championing, and I was sort of sitting there going, yeah, I can see any of these. Now Josh has apparently done a runner since then, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, but um, but yeah, no, I, I really can't argue with this. And I think fundamentally, one of Pitt's greatest achievements may very well be the return of British solvency, which is, of course, fundamentally, look, Wellington aside, the Peninsular War aside, the most effective troops that Britain had during the Napoleonic War was the Golden Cavalry of St. George. It was (laughs) its money. Um, And you don't get that in that way without Pitt. My my question here is, you know, Britain adores to define itself in this period as sort of the most progressive of the allies. It's the constitutional democracy, constitutional monarchy. It's not an absolutist state. It is enlightened, blah, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Pitt's arrogance, his, his own knowledge of his self-worth actually seems to push against that. Uh, do you feel that maybe he was giving the game away a little bit, that he was actually saying the loud part soft and the soft part loud, in that he was, you know, sort of not pushing forward the the image that Britain wanted to be put overseas, but instead the one that is the actual truth in this case? I'm not sure I entirely understand your question. Um. <laughs> you know, Britain becomes the the lock on on the sort of the more progressive, the more liberal side of this, especially compared to absolutist Austria, Prussia, and Russia in the end of the in the end of the matter. Um, now there's an argument, there's a fundamental argument to be made that what Britain gets eventually gets democracy in the 20th century, fundamentally. The Great Reform Act does some stuff, but not enough. Uh, but Pitt's sort of his his sort of willingness to, or his determination to to be the star of the House of Commons, the star of his own story, uh, seems to almost be slightly more absolutist than England should have been comfortable with at the time. Mm, no, I 100% disagree with that, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, fair enough. That's why I'm asking. I, Look, I'm, uh, I'm, clutching for, I'm clutching at straws here. You, you've given an amazing yeah. presentation, and I'm with you. Pitt's an, it's a remarkable <laughs> figure. So... I'm desperately trying to invent controversy when there is none. I think I, I think this is why I'm not a journalist. Yeah, 
I think I, I think I see what you're getting at, and I can understand why you you are saying that because Pitt really he he really did a, uh, sit astride like a colossus as he's portrayed in the Gilray cartoon yeah. I mentioned, um, and indeed there is a certain period in the 1790s where um, the the opposition under Fox actually seceded from Parliament. They actually left Parliament completely, um, which was technically treason, um, <laughs> but. Um, uh, so, uh, but but it really did hamstring the government, and it it did make them look a little bit like they were talking to themselves because mm -hmm. there was nobody to answer them. There were a couple of people who turned up occasionally and did answer. Um, one of them pit for to deal with, and that's a different story. Um, but uh, um, so yeah, I can I can see your point. Um, but um, you had to understand, Pitt Pit was part of a system. He was one hundred percent invested in that system. Um, he. Uh, he didn't really have the imagination to be uh, a dictator. Um, he was the servant, he was the archetypical servant of the British state. Um, he was the British state as far as he was concerned, um, in the sense that, uh, not, not in the sense that he embodied it, but in, in the sense that he was completely subordinate to it. Um, so he couldn't separate himself from the country in the same way that historians haven't been able to separate him from the country. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that makes him absolute. Um, he certainly wasn't absolute. Um, I, I referred already to the fact that the king just, you know, yeah. forced him to resign. Pitt didn't yeah. want to resign. Um, some historians say he did, but he didn't really. He, he changed his mind within about a couple of weeks. And he's like, oh, I changed my mind. Can I come back? No. Um, so you know, it's, um, so no, I, I, I disagree, but I can also, I, I, I can see why you say that. Let me, let me follow it up with a very different question. Uh, something that, that struck me in your, in your speech, uh, in your, in your argument, let's go with argument instead of speech here. Uh, you know, you, you make the point, uh, that sort of he's held, he's held up as sort of this icon for both British conservatism and British liberalism. And you also make the point that certain people have argued that he is, he is a fundamental part of the foundation of the two-party system. But he almost sounds the way you phrase it more, and, and I think what you've just said actually lends itself to that even more. Uh, he sounds almost more British civil service than British politics, right? It's the country, it's not the party. You're absolutely right. Um, and uh, um, a lot of historians have, um, well, I mean, certainly the, the um, uh, origins of the civil service are uh, often traced back to Pitt's bureaucratic reforms. Um, mm. And that was one thing that he's very, uh, well, I was going to talk in nauseam about how he affected the British state, but then I decided, no, let's not do that because I could be here for, we could all be here for hours and I could just be talking about British politics and everyone would just go to sleep. And um, But there you go. Um, so, I mean, that, that is a big part of his legacy, um, and it's something that he personally was very proud of. Um, so, yes, I can, I can absolutely see that. I mean, he's not, he's not a hugely glamorous figure. Um, there's nothing very, you know, it, it, there's nothing particularly Churchillian about him, except for his eloquence, if you see what I mean. He, 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 he did have charisma at a sort of personal level, so he had a lot of very, very close friends who would have basically died for him um but other people found him very standoffish and very kind of mm. cold and um um 
I don't know if you've seen the film The Man is King George. Um, there's a, a bit where he's introduced and he's walking in with Fox and uh, Fox says, does anything excite you, Mr. Pitt? And he says, a good balance sheet, Mr. Fox. Um, it's a caricature, but it's basically, it's based on on, yeah. on reality. So yes, I, I, I do, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, the way you've made it sound functionally, we and without 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 Pitt the Younger, we don't get Sir Humphrey Appleby, which means this yeah. argument is shown up as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> oh, um, I think they would have gone done. on very well, those two. <laughs> you know, I think Pitt actually has a quote or something where he says, like, I'm not a Tory, I'm not a Whig or something like that. Yeah, um, it's... I forget I'm, it exactly. We, 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 we could again be here for many, many hours if you want to get me on that subject. No, no, I'm this not going to go of, down this there. Is, this is one of my rants. Um, but yes, absolutely. He was challenged on one occasion in Parliament. Um, Fox got up, or someone like Fox got up and said, you're a Tory. And he said, whatever you want me to be, basically. Yeah, you know, yeah. If you say, I'm a Tory, I'm a Tory. Um, but, um, <laughs> but as far, and then he went on a, on a, on a whole spiel mm. about the uh, Whig constitution of 1688 because basically that's you know he was that um he was that guy um, <laughs> yeah well no I mean he, he was brought up in that um yes. tradition mm -hmm. so you know if you start talking about Pitt as a Tory you're not wrong but you're also not strictly speaking correct <laughs> I'm going to stop right there because otherwise we could be going on for hours let us hurriedly move on. I just want to say, Luke, I see what you're getting at there. There's a sort of slightly Napoleon-esque kind of embed myself in the, the fabric of danger. how this... Da this danger, danger, works. Will Robinson, danger. The, uh, the true irony being that, like, you can see that, but you can also see in, in, his, in his determination to... To, to, to pull stability out and to sort of basically say, you know, there's 15 years of peace, we just have to grab it. There's almost a, a, a hint of appeasement in it. So you have this very, it's, 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 it's actually, it's incredibly pit. It's both sides and then right down the middle. Should we just have an episode about pit? <laughs> some yes, <point>. yes. <laughs> Believe me, I've had exactly the same thoughts already. I have a, I have a notebook, and it's gone into my. It's not a little black book, actually. You'll be mightily relieved to hear. You know, there's no kind of dad's army caricatures that you can draw of. The name is on the list, um, but there is a, a flowery notebook. Funnily enough, and yes, a pit episode is now on the list. Let us move rapidly on from Dad's Army. Alex, spare us from from the memes and and give us your thoughts on Pitt as a contender here. Well, we already discussed it uh, so much about Pitt that uh, and, and Jacqueline did such a marvelous um, job in, in terms of introducing him. I think instead of a question, more of a comment is that, um, of course, any assessment of, of, a, of, a, of a man like, like him must take into account both his personality, but also the basic kind of political, socioeconomic environment in which he operates. And of course, he was fortunate in many respects that the post you know, 1780s British economy is, is far more robust than we used to think, or sometimes in popular imagination, we, we think. We know that many of the Pitt's initiatives were ideas that preceded him uh, and that were, uh, he was indebted to other people like Lord North or um, like, um, I think, Price in terms of sinking fund. Um, but there is one element, kind of the comment that I want to make, and that is uh, from a biography of his uh, by uh, Ehrman, I guess. 
Um, and there is in, in that Ehrman's uh, work, there's a passage that um, stuck with me when I read it, in, in which he says that uh, Pitt was able to accomplish much because uh, he combined vision with practicality. And I find that very, very important. Um, the the pre precise quote, um, you know, if, if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm not if, uh, kind of mistaken, the precise quote was um, combining strong instinct for perfection to his equally strong instinct for possible. And that is the crucial thing to have in, in a statesman, uh, because the very <laughs> the very individual that I mentioned in the very in the beginning is a uh, trying to stir up the pot, oftentimes you know had the instinct for kind of the uh, ideal and perfection, but lacked, especially in the later half of, of of his reign. Right, Napoleon certainly lacks the instinct for the possible, and Pitt retained that to a far greater degree than than Napoleon did. So. Um, I, I find him utterly fascinating. See, for the first time in, in a while, I've almost wondered if I've created an echo chamber in here tonight, because as you were saying, running through that quote, which I think is, is a brilliant one, Alex, I was thinking, oh, what a contrast with Napoleon there. <laughs> and it's, this, this comes from a guy who is, is sort of still reassessing their stance on Napoleon, but is not a fan, mm. and yet, I think that really kind of speaks to the kind of the, the political dynamic during this period, which is what makes it so interesting. Absolutely. And and I've, I've actually um, was a reader on a very interesting book that came out a week ago, I guess, or two, maybe. I just got the copy recently. Uh, Nathaniel Jarrett's The Line at Dawn, uh, which um, actually reassesses uh, Pitt's foreign policy. And it is it was quite frustrating for me to be kind of looking at, at things from Pitt's point of view, because he is arguing in favor of collective security, the very thing that it will take 23 years of bloodshed for Europe so, to finally reach that. So to be in that in his shoes and, and trying to... Somewhere Beatrice de Graaf just sort of sat her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, uh, and, and I, I love kind of uh, uh, looking at it, kind of seeing in some places, misguided efforts for, by Pitt to, introduce, to, to impose that vision. I think Jacqueline Cohen mentioned the Ochoco crisis and, and the humiliation that it uh, kind of uh, gave him. Uh, but overall, goal was commendable and practical. <laughs> I think we've done rather a good job on Pitt. We are going to cycle it onwards. Luke, I'm coming to you next. I'm not doing any spoilers on who's doing who, the floor is yours. Posterity will ne'er survey a nobler grave than this. Here lies the bones of Castlereagh. Stop, traveler, and piss. Byron there, uh, providing uh, the traditional epitaph to uh, one of Britain's best and most hated statesmen politicians. Now, I'm I'm in an interesting position here because as Jacqueline has already mentioned, Castlereagh was playing from Pitt's playbook a lot of the time. But it is Castlereagh that in the end has to go across the English Channel into Europe 
and is part of that team that in the words of Paul Schroeder, teaches Europe to stop playing 18th century poker and start playing contact bridge instead. A contract bridge instead, apologies. Contact bridge is a very interesting secondary sport. He's a fascinating figure. The man had no, he did not have anything like Pitt's uh, oratory or even charisma. And yet he achieved a remarkable amount and I think that's what puts him on this list more than anything. The man, uh, Robert Stewart, Viscount Castlereagh, to give the full uh, name for anyone who you know didn't know that Byron quote and immediately jumped to who I was talking about, um, is one of the architects of Vienna. He's one of the architects of that collective uh, security and peace that I, I will let Beatrice de Graff discuss in much greater detail than any of us are possibly able to. He does this while surrounded by enemies, right? You know, Pitt is this colossus. He stands astride Parliament. He stands astride Britain. By the time Castlereagh is, is sort of the leading foreign secretary of his time, he is following Pitt's playbook, and but has to sell it to a cabinet that doesn't particularly want to be involved in Europe at all, right? They want that peace. They want a European peace so they can get on with the Blue Water Empire, uh, but they don't want to be involved. There's actually, fundamentally, there's echoes of, of sort of pro-Europe uh, MEPs screaming while Brexit goes down uh, to Castlereagh's policy as he pushes for this. He, he's one of the architects of the Quadruple Alliance. And fundamentally, what he does, which considers to continues to blow my mind completely, is yes, he takes Pitt's playbook that we cannot destroy France, we cannot burn the ashes of the Ancien Regime down without creating another 25, 50 years of instability. But he has to sell this to Prussia, Russia, and Austria, not only fresh from two decades of humiliation, but drunk on victory. Vienna could have been a chance for a punitive peace. It could have been Versailles. And in fact, uh, he's referenced in 1918, there are a number of British foreign policy guonks and British politics who turn to the team at Versailles and go, follow Castlereagh, do not make this punitive. And of course, we know how that ends. They don't listen to that. But instead, he seizes on this. And with the help of his, you know, sort of weirdly great ally Metternich in this, uh, builds a, a system where France is not only preserved, but again, under his guidance and with another one of his great allies, Wellington, is fundamentally folded back into the great powers in three years. That's unbelievable. That level of, of bypassing national antipathy, uh, something he does, by the way, for the English as well. He's fighting a, a, a cabinet and a parliament who doesn't want to be a part of this, but he's also a crucial part of, along with Wellington again, of getting policies in place that bring English 
tourists bring regular English people across the channel again into France again and part of that tourism that will build and build until eventually we face a France that is not the old enemy but is stranger than strange an ally where did that come from who thought who thought, who saw that coming right so uh, yes uh not overly charismatic not in fact hated truly one of the most hated figures in 19th century british politics and yet a man who achieves a remarkable amount and i think that's fundamentally it's his achievements in the face of his pressures that that earn him a place maybe not on the top of this list but on this list Another stellar pitch. Thank you very much for that, Luke. Um, at the start, you came the closest I think anyone has come to breaking the host. That was one heck of a quote to begin with. Um, yeah, it, it's an obvious, you can't talk about this period and not talk Castlereagh, right? When you're talking about statesmen and, and politics. Um, he He's probably one of the, the top four that you would think about when it comes to, to listing um key statesmen of this period um there are a couple of things i want to pick up on one thing that you talked about there which is the extent to which he is hated i just wonder if you can give our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with this a, an indication of why he's hated you know for byron to turn around and make a comment like that well i mean it's it's byron did like to make you know comments of that ilk on occasion but just give us an indication of why there was so much ire for him amongst certain sections of society i have three three uh names for you one of an organization and two of people the united irishman william orr and james porter uh castle ray's uh tenure as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland uh, is not a shining moment. And he sees uh, the United Irishmen in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, at, at right, right at that moment, right before that moment of like invasion panic. And he comes down as hard on them as the British do again in 1916 for the Easter Rising, right? Now, Britain and Ireland in 1916 are very different than Britain and Ireland in 1795. Uh, so it doesn't create um, this sort of ex explosion. But I, you know, he sees it as doing what is necessary. But it is so heavy handed in a way. Uh, and it is, it's building on what was already this reputation of. Uh, conservatism. I think unlike Pitt, we can very much, there's no liberalism, there's no Whiggishness about this man. Uh, this man bled Tory, which is one of the reasons why he was such a close friend with Wellington, of course. Um, so yeah, there's that, there is that sort of, uh, that straight up just drive through it, uh, right, you know, and, and of course there's also, um, his his less than stellar response to uh, Peterloo, which is again exactly the same thing, right? You know, we are doing what we can. We are doing the best for these poor, ignorant savages. And for God's sake, will they just let us get on with this? 
why are they interrupting us? And that is not an attitude that goes down well. And it's certainly not an attitude that goes down well um, in a country that has as ruthless, um, I'm not gonna say an opposition, but as ruthless a satirical opposition as Britain does, right? It's not just Byron, it's, um, you know, it's it's giving him horns, it's giving him uh, um, donkey's ears in caricature, right? It's it's all of that. And this is this is a man who, he commits suicide uh, and basically the response is effectively the, in certain circles, is effectively the same as, as what happened uh, when news of Margaret Thatcher's death broke on Twitter. You know, if, if, uh, if the Wizard of Oz had been written at that point, it would have been ding dong, the witch is dead or the warlock in this case. So yeah, th this is a man who who viewed who thought about countries rather than people, and that is not a good position to be in in certain places. And you've done a beautiful segue there into the other thing that I just wanted to touch on, which was the there are discussions around his suicide. To what extent was it? A result of you know an ongoing nervous breakdown that witness paranoia set in um, and then saw him decline further there has been speculation that it may have been related in some way to syphilis um, but it, it's curious that uh, certainly the the mental health argument is deemed the stronger uh, at, at this moment in time it's curious that it all kind of seems a bit too much for him is there is, is that a sense that you get when you assess this that actually the strain of uh, perhaps even trying to continue the the pit legacy you know trying to imitate pit okay he's not prime minister so he doesn't have to do everything that Pitt did but sort of trying to continue that legacy is sort of what breaks him because this is arguably sort of one of the things that boosts the the case for pit that actually it takes a pit to do a pit and where Carceray is trying to follow the pit playbook actually it breaks a human being yeah i mean i think that's a fair point uh but but what Castlereagh is trying to do is is pull a pit uh with a prime minister who's not pit uh and he's trying to he's trying to pull a pit with a cabinet who that's not swayed by and governed by pit Right. So he's pushing, he's trying to push, uh, yes, he's trying to push a remarkable set of, far, of foreign policy objectives, but um, he's doing it against an opposition that Pitt doesn't have. Um, and that, I, I, come, I come back to that again. The other thing I do want to say just on the, on the, um, the, the humanity versus country thing, which is a, a notable point for him, um, and again, I'm not saying it's enough, it goes nowhere near enough, but his determination in the middle of Vienna to push for the abolition of the international slave trade, his efforts on that behalf uh, are sort of, are fascinating in, in this moment where he is at the same time sort of cheerfully executing Irish rebels, or not at the same time, but the same person. Um, is sort of that that back and forth. Yeah, I, I think there is a, you know, I think he's trying, I think the nervous breakdown comes out of trying to pull a pit 
without Pitt's charisma and without Pitt's support. Uh, and that is what breaks him. I, I really enjoyed that pitch. That was um, uh, really good. Um, and I, I really admire Castlereagh as a um, as a statesman for many of the reasons that you put forward. Um, I wonder whether part of Castlereagh's problem isn't so much that he was trying to measure up to Pitt as that he had Castlereagh to contend with, um, <laughs> as well as Pitt, um, because of course, uh, shortly before he came back as Foreign Secretary, I can't remember, was it 1812 or 1813 he came back? Um, he had, of course... Um, 1812, rather, I think. Yes, yeah, I think I, I have 1812 in my head, um, but uh, he had left the Cabinet under something of a cloud, um, having... Uh, performed in a rather less than stellar way as Secretary of State um, for War. Mm. Um, and uh, the whole scandal with the deal with Canning, of course, um, all that baggage hanging around him. Um, and of course, you've, you've mentioned the Irish issue, um, which is, of course, what he would have mostly been known for up to about 1809, when he suddenly became known for something else. Um, so I, I, I th personally, I feel that he was um, he did exceedingly well to shed that baggage, but I just wonder whether you have any thoughts on how that might have helped or hampered him. You know, I think I think that's one of the that is that baggage is there is there is one of the reasons why he is. Uh, this is this is going to sound weird. Um, it's one of the reasons why he's so good in Vienna um, is because he can walk away from it. Right, Vienna doesn't care about this. It's it's a bigger issue. It's foreign relations. Um, this may actually end up being a distinction without a difference. Uh, but I think the best way to think about Castlereagh is he's a superb statesman and not a superb politician. Um, you know, you put him in the abstract. You throw him in the big picture not having to deal with individuals, and he's superb. You make him answerable to individuals and you get a problem. Uh, and I think that is, that does lead into, again, you know, it's not just living up to Pitt, it's living up to Castlereagh and also fighting Castlereagh, right? And I think we can, I think we can agree uh, that no matter what the cause of his suicide was, part of it was internal demons and fighting himself in a way. Right, that's sort of the, one of the classic descriptions of that. So yeah, I think I think you have a I think you you make a really a really compelling point there, um, and I think it's it's telling that a lot of his best work happens, you know, several hundred miles from London <laughs> and not north or west. I th I think that's fair. <laughs> I think it's more than fair. Alex, let me bring you in at this point. Castlereagh, huh? Um, you look so disappointed in me, Alex. I don't know, no, not necessarily because um, not not disappointed for sure, but it, he's a tough choice. Um, tragic figure. I think that's it, uh, to me that goes to the heart of of things, both. Um, on the issues that we've talked about that you alluded to, Luke, and certainly the end of his life. Um, but 
the the problem I have with Castlereagh is that his statesmanship in many regards, especially outside Britain, is overshadowed by continental figures. Um, and of course, kind of to bring maybe a counter argument for you, Luke, none other than uh, Kissinger. Kissinger uh, wrote his dissertation, I don't know, on Congress of Vienna, on the Metternich. Yeah, a little, a little restored. Uh -huh, a little axe to grind that he had. Uh, uh, and of course, in diplomacy, right? Kissinger's great work. Um, he is absolutely savage towards Castlereagh, uh, going to the degree to say that Castlereagh uh, was, if I'm not mistaken, out of tune, <laughs> this is a quote, out of tune with his, not only with his contemporaries, Kissinger says, but with the entire thrust of modern British foreign policy. Yes, yes, he does. What are you going to say to that? I'm going to say that despite being completely out of touch with it, he drags Britain kicking and screaming into the quadruple and quintuple alliance and builds the concert of Europe. Yeah. Um, was Can he... I just say, what we're watching here is two people properly slugging it out, you know? This is an academic ding-dong of the highest proportions. Wait a I second. mean, we've, we've just seen That's two That's why you invited us, right? That's why you got us here. Hey, this is great podcasting. I'm not stopping you guys. I just want people to appreciate that this is, you know, bottles have been smashed. We're outside in the street. This is proper barbaral territory. Oh, wait a right second. Now. The smashing of the bottle, the smashing of the bottle was my follow up quote from Kissinger, in which he says, and I quote, Hassery left no legacy. <laughs> no I... British statesman has used Castlery as a model. Now we are talking. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> right. No British statesman has used Castlery as a model. But as I mentioned in my origin, had they done, we might not have had World War II. Yeah. Because <laughs> Versailles would have gone, possibly would have gone better, right? No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, right? And, and it takes a lot for Kissinger to hate Castlereagh given how conservative both of them are. Mm -hmm. um, and no, even, even Castlereagh's own biographer, John Bew, right? No British statesman of the 19th century reached the same level of international influence, but very few have been so maligned by their own countrymen and so abused by history. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I love, actually, of, of Castlereagh's biography, so uh, Bews is my favorite. It's a giant book. And I have on my shelf, I have mm. that book, Castlereagh, next to the new biography of Metternich, next to Napoleon, next to Wellington. Kind of the gang is getting together. <laughs> the gang's if, all here. If the world ends tomorrow, we know who did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was Wellington right. and Napoleon kissing in, in ceramic form. That yeah, Frank I, did think, it, but... I think it was, yeah. Should we reenact it again? Or... <laughs> no, well, if you do, I'm 100% print screening that and splattering it all over Twitter. You <laughs> have been warned. Oh my God. You, you're, you're simply making my point for me, Alex. Yeah. The fact that he is you're so despised and hated, you know, I, look, I, you taught me well, I build myself on the shoulders of giants. Um, 
The fact that he is so despised and so hated, and yes, the fact that he is not held up in any way, and he, I mean, honestly, look, uh, <laughs> I mean, British politics is in such a terrible position right now that they might benefit from uh, aping Castlereagh, which is a horrifying thing to say. Um, but he manages to achieve so much, right? And yes, he is. He's overshadowed at Vienna by Metternich, by Nestle Road, by Talleyrand, who fundamentally, you want to talk about a man who achieves, uh, who fights like a tiger with no poker hand whatsoever. Talleyrand is bluffing with no cards and he achieves a remarkable amount. But but Castlereagh is still there and he's still do he's still doing what he's doing and he is still not only helping to guide and temper a Europe that is desperate to not only sort of humble France for God's sakes this is a these are these are we're in the we're in the moment where Wellington has to persuade Blucher not to blow up the Pont de Jena and the Pont de Austerlitz is a bitter sort of f you to Paris. And Castlereagh is there, fundamentally lacking some of the backing of his government, trying to, and achieving a level of balance. I, this is very bizarre because I'm in this position where I'm arguing 100% for a man whose personal politics I despise. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to my guns here. Um, you know, it, every, everyone that's, every criticism that's being leveled at him makes his achievement more impressive. I mean, what you've just done there about, you know, sort of advocating for somebody whose personal politics you despise. Have you tried advocating for Wellington at any point in your career? That's a tough sell, my friend. <laughs> um, well, actually, honestly, it's Wellington's uh, politics which is why when given, when you asked me to come on this and you said, who do you want? I didn't pick him uh, because outside of Catholic emancipation, that is, it's a mess. And I'm just not sure I can make that case. I leave that to, to others instead. Although I will argue that some of his best work is in Vienna and in Paris afterwards alongside Castlereagh. The two of them make a phenomenal team. Um, one of these days, Alec, uh, Zach, you'll have to have me on to argue about someone I actually like. Where would the fun be in that? All right, that, valid. That, that, that's, a, that's a daft suggestion, Luke. <laughs> um, Allow Josh, me to make, uh, make the argument that Zach White is the greatest statesman of the Napoleonic era. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a that's a sell that nobody wants to hear. No, that, I know, that I know. Pitch. I'm sorry. I, I interrupted you. Uh, oh, I was just throwing the ball straight over to Josh. Uh uh, thank you. It's it's a it's a very good pitch. I mean, Castlereagh is absolutely one of the names that comes up when you think of of the great statesmen of the era. Um, I my my main if I if if I was to choose amongst the British statesmen, though, my my the voices in my head, you know, all five hundred of them, um, you know. We all talk to ourselves, right, in different uh, accents. But um, the the voices in my head would be telling me that Castlereagh doesn't, while while deserving a place quite high up, doesn't quite deserve sort of top tier position. 
would be because of what you said towards the end there. What he does in Vienna is very much a team effort. It is done, I think his success, I should say, is greatly based on the diplomatic and political clout that is given to him because of the general standing next to him most of the time. Whereas Castlereagh was not, you know, you know, as you said, he wasn't a terribly popular man. He, and as Alexander said, he gets overshadowed by a lot of the other statesmen at Vienna. Nobody outshines Wellington. And that's including emperors. Now, on the subject of emperors, he also was not necessarily fighting hard against, say, a particular emperor. One of the reasons Blucher couldn't blow the Pondiana, etc., was to, not only because Wellington said, oh, my dear chap, we can't be going doing this. This isn't us. This isn't what we fought for. The Tsar also came up and said, no, Blucher, Napoleon wrecks my country much more than he wrecks yours, and I'm not going to have you blowing up bridges just to prove a point. So I think that's what makes him a slightly weaker contender. I do agree. He's a, he's like the architect of the sort of the collective security mission, hi Beatrice. Um, but I, I think he is just slightly weaker just because it is a team effort. I'm not saying that Wellington could have done it on his own either. He needed Castlereagh with him, but because it's a joint thing, between Wellington and Castlereagh, and in the way the Tsar, um, it sort of he 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 doesn't quite, I think, for me, reach say like the top tier of statesmen. In a Napoleonic Wars pod first, I am going to intervene on behalf of an embattled guest on this one and pose a counter to you. And this is no in no way indicating that Luke cannot fight this corner. <laughs> by himself he's been doing very well I, I, exactly I, this is all i um, had this is all i had <laughs> i wonder if you're just being a little bit harsh there josh because surely the whole story of the napoleonic era is that diplomats can only negotiate with the sort of military political reality and the geopolitical consequences of what generals hand to them you know that that is the, the whole story of the napoleonic era you know Napoleon being able to dictate geopolitical reality because of what he can do on a battlefield and other nations being unable yes. to turn success into, to, to generate the success initially, to then be able to do that. So I wonder if that's too harsh a critique. Well, the critique isn't necessarily meant to be harsh exactly. I was just sort of voicing why my doubts about Castlereagh, really. Um, because the, and, and although, so to 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 sort of take the question head on, yes, politicians and diplomats do derive political power from military successes if used correctly. However, Wellington's presence at Vienna is quite sort of a very dramatic side of that because he is there because he at that time is Britain's main reason in the eyes of Europe for having a seat at the table. And Castlereagh is basically there to say, I'm the British government and I agree with everything this man says. 
And by the way, this is what I would like to do. And Wellington then sort of steps to the side and says, yes, I, this is what the government wants and I'm its servant and I just won all these battles. So I think it's sort of like, yes, I agree. But this is a very dramatic example of it, if so. And like, like I say, like Luke himself said, this is a team effort here. And I think that when posed against some of the others who brought their own teams and led their own teams, um, that, to my mind, just sort of means there are a few others ahead of Castlereagh. May I uh, jump in on this? It is, I mean, it is your redirect, technically. Zach, 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 you zapped you. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, first of all, yes, you know, Wellington is coming off the Peninsular War. He's coming off of... Oh, and, and by the way, I agree entirely. Um, you know, if you, if someone was to bring Wellington to this debate, you would absolutely say it has to be for only the Napoleonic Wars, basically. Mm. That is where he is a great statesman. Yeah, really. And and also he is a great. He's a very, he's he's a much better statesman than he is a politician. Much like Castlereagh, yeah. like you said, they got on very well together. No, they absolutely did. They absolutely did. So, yes, Wellington is there. You know, uh, he's there, fresh from the peninsula. Um, he gives. Castlereagh, the gift of Waterloo towards the end of Vienna, right, along with Blücher. Um, but Castlereagh, uh, A, is also one of um, the architects of the Treaty of Chaumont, which brings together the quadruple alliance that results in Vienna. And no, also, no just argument. And also just to sort of throw this back at you, and I will grant you that, you know, he wasn't standing there, right? And that is an important part of this. Is Metternich's role at, at Vienna uh, limited because it was Carl Philip, Prince of Schwarzenberg, that commanded the Austrian troops at the Battle of Leipzig? No, because Schwarzenberg did not have the military reputation that Wellington had at the end of the war. He was not a very good soldier. He was a very good diplomat. And that was why he got that job. But he came under massive criticism for the way he handled the Austrian army, especially when Napoleon went around battering the army of Silesia um, to hell. I mean, valid, <laughs> but he's also, you know, he is one of the, oh, he's he's the Austrian commander yeah, at Leipzig. He, he, along with, you know, Barclay de Tolle, um, you know, Bucher again. He's very, he's, he's one of the heroes. He just, he just, he's no challenge to Metternich in this. He don't, Metternich doesn't need him. <laughs> Actually, I, I would I would go a little bit further and say that, um, um, and I, in that sense, I agree with again to to Lubin, Kissinger, um, uh, and, and Kissinger and Webster and others actually, who point out that Castlereagh's one of the crucial contributions in like fourteen fifteen was the fact that he had come to accept Austrian um, interpretation of the goals of war. And in that sense, that's where I kind of I have a issue with, with Castlereagh as that great statesman is that he oftentimes trots the line that is laid down by Austria with, with the Vida goals of war. And especially, you know, 14, the, you know, Congress of Vienna. Um, I think Metternich is, is more, more instrumental. I, if I could just pitch in briefly, um... I have to say that I, I, I'm going to stick up a little bit for Castlereagh here as well. As, so as I you think should. If you're going to start bringing Wellington up, 
you have to say that Castlereagh achieved everything he did without having won the Battle of Waterloo, which, to be fair, is, you know, given that was mainly what was pushing Wellington forward in terms of prestige at that stage, um, I think yeah. that speaks for Castlereagh rather than Wellington. I think it does. And I want to be clear here, I'm not necessarily saying that because Wellington's presence there doesn't mean he wasn't a great statesman. I'm just saying that this it was it was more of a team effort, unlike unlike Machinique, unlike Talleyrand. Um and and I, I absolutely need to point out here that Wellington was not leading this. It's just his his leading part was to lend his authority in the eyes of the other diplomats to Castlereagh. Castlereagh was absolutely the man leading. Wellington always said, I am the servant. I do what the government tells me. So he wasn't trying to outshine Castlereagh. It's just he had the glamour. And that was what I think got helped Castlereagh. Okay, ding ding. Enough's enough. Give the poor man a break. <laughs> Let us move on. Um, how do you follow up on a round like that? Well, for round three, we are going to the ever-brilliant Alex Mukaburidze. Alex, take it away. Thank you, thank you. And I'll, again, you guys set the bar so high. I don't think I'll jump that high. Uh, as we all know, white, white guys can't jump. Um, <laughs> hey, remember that movie? <laughs> all right. Um, let me start with an opening. And it's a quote. Never has there been a man more detested and dreaded than him. From the Baltic to the Pyrenees, from the boundaries of Turkey to the borders of Holland, there is but one voice heard, and that of execrating his name. The quote then goes on that he was prime mover of political machine, the subtle supple, handsome in exterior, graceful in demeanor. He can assume every shape, accommodate himself to every character of circumstance. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> Any guesses? Look at this. What a life such a man must lead, watching like a spider in the center of his snares, the endless and intersecting threats of his web of intrigue. His agents are everywhere, his maneuvers incessant. And while a broad and generous scheme of policy would elevate his country, change murmurs and disaffection into tranquility and attachment, raise a barrier against the perilous encroachments of other countries. And yet he is, by exciting irritation at home and suspicions abroad, collecting the materials for future explosions, putting all to hazard in favor of an injurious and exclusive system that gives neither happiness to people, stability to the thrones, nor security to external relations. <laughs> My friends, I introduce you, Metternich. I think he's the big boy. Compared to the all others we're gonna be discussing today, that's the man and let me make a case for him. To start with, to start with, Metternich held office at the head of Europe's affairs for a longer period than any other statesman, certainly not the ones that we've discussed. <laughs> Moreover, 
Moreover, he is the only one, <laughs> right? He is the only one after Napoleon among the people that we've discussed or will discuss who has a period named after him, the age of Metternich, which I should probably point out to my Francophile friends lasted twice as long as the age of Napoleon. <laughs> in fact, um, we know that he comes to power, right? In Austria as a foreign minister in 1809, he will not resign until the spring of 1848. And even then he's forced out. But even this is just a glimpse of his political kind of career, public career, because Metternich's public involvement kind of his official service starts as early as 1790, when he performs official duties during the coronation of Leopold II, the Holy Roman Emperor of German Reich. And his kind of public involvement goes on. He has a long, long life until in 1859, he offers advice on questions of war and peace by Leopold's great-grandson, Francis Joseph. In 1794, it is Metternich who actually rubs shoulders with Prince of Wales, the future King George IV. And then 63, 63 years later, he is the one who talks to Prince of Wales, the future Edward VII, and gives him advice on wines to drink. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. He reached his height in terms of political um, importance, in terms of states, kind of statesmanship. He reaches his height at the age of 45, which is coincidentally the same age I turn today. With curly blonde hair, pale blue eyes, slender toned physique of that fencer. He stood above medium height was universally acknowledged as a very handsome man to the degree that even his critic, the great German historian Treitschke, could not but say that he was, quote, Adonis of the drawing room. But he also adds that he was, quote, past master of all the pettiness and cunning treachery. Indeed, um, Metternich for decades remained at the heart of the Austrian diplomatic, Austrian diplomatic effort. Four years he crafted Austrian foreign policy, certainly after 1809. And that is where I make the case for him, that it is Metternich, the true architects of Congress of Vienna, 
or at least the settlement of it, whose legacy survives well beyond the death of Napoleon, whose legacy is that of maintaining peace on continent for three decades. It is Metternich, who horrified as he was of war, which he has witnessed in 1794, that hateful invention, as he puts it. It is Metternich, horrified by this war, that wants to contain, contain the conflict by coming, coming up with a system that did, its, did quite well, certainly until 18, late 1840s, until the outbreak of Crimean War, the Metternichian system is the one that retain, re, restrains the revolutionary zeals, that governs the relations between the great powers. It's not the same way as to say that his impact is, in hindsight, from modern day point of view necessarily, positive or progressive. We know that he was the bane of liberal aspirations of the time. We know that he played a crucial role in delaying kind of development of constitutional movement in Germany for quite some time. Personally, he's incredibly vain and oftentimes kind of lampoonish so. But overall, I think his impact is undeniable. It is Metternich who plays a decisive role in switching Austrian's position in 1812, 13, 14. It is Metternich who is at the heart of the coalition building against Napoleon that goes on to celebrate in Paris. And then it is Metternich who hosts the Congress of Vienna and pulls the strings successfully enough to create a post-Napoleonic security system that will shape the future of Europe. I'm all ears. Can I start by saying happy birthday? But what the heck are you doing here on your birthday? You should you should be what? celebrating with family, not debating with us about you know, wasting time on this fool Zach White and his podcast. Oh, this this is a treat for me, right? This is a treat. Come on, teasing you guys, um, this is, listening to you. This is... Oh, I see. The teasing is the treat. Um, I, I thought. <laughs> I thought you were going to be really nice and say, you know, the treat was being on this show. No, um, he rightly put me in my place there. Um, Alex also now joins the club of people who have appeared on this show on their birthday. So it's you and me, Alex. Hi, there it's you a, go. Yeah. It's an elite what, what is your birthday, Josh? Uh, well, uh, at the risk of giving away vital information, uh, it's the 30th of September. All right. So we have another... <laughs> yeah, a little bit more, but I think it was 21. The show probably won't be going on that long. It was 21, 22, <laughs> but I got the same flea in my ear from Zach for appearing on my birthday on his show. <laughs> no, I, was... I mean, I love the dedication, but seriously, gents, you've got better things to be doing. There, there are, you know, there's cake to be eaten, for heaven's sake. Never mind. Yeah, it's also a sign Zach, of respect. I gave a paper at your Jesus. conference on my birthday. Thank you very much. Why is nobody <laughs> telling me these things? <laughs> are people just scared to mention these things until the actuality this is insane um so we've established that i'm a horrendous and deeply unkind taskmaster by dragging you all away from your birthday celebrations to do napoleonic content um you talked about treats alex i think the treat actually was to just listen you listen to you you know go forth on on metonic there uh, we i think we got a window into what it's like to be 
lectured by you and folks take what you've just heard translate it into book form and you've got the precise reason why just the other day josh and i were lauding uh the napoleonic wars of global history um and saying that frankly it is the indispensable reference work now on this period thank you thank um, you so here 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 thank you so thank you now let's go back to bashing metronic all right then so now you want us to having smashed the bottles and most of the glasses in the bar you now want us to smash the snooker cues uh, and continue <laughs> onwards um simple question is he perhaps alongside Talleyrand an exceptionally duplicitous individual because that's the perception that I have but that may just simply be a reflection of my ignorance but I have this perception that Metternich is willing to play perhaps because he has to any side that's going to to further Austria's cause is that fair um well I, it, well <laughs> Let me quote kind of the maybe side they could uh, a quote from a Seinfeld series, a U.S. sitcom. Is that is that wrong? Uh, is that necessarily <laughs> a bad thing? Again, he is acting on behalf of of this nation, of the country, of the realm that he represents, and he is willing, indeed, to take what it you know do what it takes to protect its interests. Now, it's it's a different thing to kind of say whether in a large scheme of thing that was in the benefit of the people of the country, but it will be a historical was to to kind of suggest that. Um, the the comparison to with Talleyrand is is interesting because I do consider both of them. Um, I think the most preeminent practitioners of of diplomacy of this time. Um, both of them have these diplomatic gifts that are. Like those of an artist, right? They kind of play a diplomacy like an artist does. But I think um, Metternich has the benefit that Talleyrand certainly doesn't have in 1814 and 15, and, and clearly doesn't have in early years. And that, and uh, and that is that he has um, in 1814-15, Metternich is representing a country that has capacity and opportunity to shape things. Uh, when Talleyrand is representing a defeated country. So uh, in that sense, we don't have the age of Talleyrand, but we do have age of Metternich. Um, and, and Metternich takes full advantage of it. That, that's where I think at, at the Congress of Vienna and in, in the immediate aftermath of it, I'll say until about uh, mid 1820s, this is truly Metternich at, at its best. Or again, in hindsight, maybe worst, um, because he defines the very character of statecraft in central central Europe. Um, to, to me, the history of, of German states, especially of Austria, um, is of course, um, or, or you know, parts of Eastern Europe like Hungary, uh, like Czech Republic or Czechia, right, is, is now kind of it, it, so closely intertwined with the very policies that this man put in place as a chancellor. Um, and 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 then kept you know uh, made sure that they stayed. So the other thing that I'm going to put to you is is the sort. Of, I should just say that actually, as somebody who is fairly Machiavellian in their outlook and generally has a sort of respect for people who can take the Machiavellian standpoint, um, I, I I would agree with you when you say you know being duplicitous when you're there to represent your country's interests probably what you should be doing. 
Um, but I'm going to stay with sort of plucking at the low hanging fruit and leave the, you know, sort of pressing and intellectual questions to my esteemed guests. Um, but you, you said yourself, you know, he's he's the one who's trying to stop progress. He's trying to stop this kind of embryonic liberal wave that is endeavouring to spread across Europe, but it is kept in check in part by Vienna, right? Um, and uh, no, actually, let me maybe uh, add a nuance here. Um, maybe two two comments, if you if you if you indulge mm, me. Please do. One is maybe to quote Metternich himself when it comes to the statecraft and, and diplomacy that he practiced. Because at one point he um, uh, he describes his approach as, quote, and then again, I'm kind of loosely quote, translating as, as hedging, evading, and flattering. Now, I don't know if it's Machiavellian in that sense, but it, it's certainly uh, one that, that takes into account pragmatic considerations. So I, I look at him more as the real politique rather than Machiavelli. Um, although again, Machiavelli you know, has a bad reputation, but many of the things that he uh, wrote about are, 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 are more, com more complex. But on the bigger issue, and that is, um, if I, I, I didn't want to leave the impression that Metternich wanted to stop progress. If I did, that's not my intent. No. Um, Metternich was not against change. He was not against evolutionary gradual transformation. Uh, but that kind of goes to the very core of his stance. He opposed revolutionary, messy transformations, um, something that he had witnessed in France, something that he's dealt, you know, spent much of his you know, best years of his life dealing with consequences with. So he was a conservative man, but conservatism of this period does not exclude change, but it needs to be controlled change, gradual change, uh, and natural change. Um, at the Karamzin, uh, Russian historian of this time, uh, well, contemporary, he famously says, you know, it, the change needs to be organic, kind of part of the development of the, of the society. You don't expect to plant an apple tree and then two years later, it's suddenly going to uh, spruce up and produce uh, peaches. That's what revolution essentially is, right? So you can trim that apple tree, right? You can kind of prune it and, and, and kind of shape it, but you still expect it to continue to, to be an apple tree. Uh, that's what Metternich's view is really. Um, so I, I don't look at him as a stopping progress as such, but rather carefully controlling it. So does he end up kind of being on the wrong side of history a la you know, sort of 1848, Year of Revolutions, and that sort of explosion of more radical um, discontent and ideology. I mean, we talk about, you know, there's a, there's a point at which it, it almost feels that sort of Metternich goes and, and everything blows up. Is that because he's taking an approach that isn't viable? Um, to a certain degree, um, uh, because, but, but again, we need to look at from he, from the hand of cards. I think somebody was talking about what uh, close contact bridge or what was it like? <laughs> contract yeah. bridge, but yes, close yeah. contact bridge uh, is the uh, is the Viennese version of chess boxing. <laughs> yeah, the the hand of cards he's dealt with is that uh, he is leading a nation starting in eighteen oh nine that has been 
uh, whooped by Napoleon more than any other nation. Uh, when you lose five times, I guess, <laughs> right? You have to, you know, you have to think of, of viability of, of, of the prospect of survival. You, he's dealt the hand of a multi-ethnic, uh, multi-confessional state. Um, and again, um, I don't necessarily hold it against him that he despised liberalism because, or disliked the liberalism because of the, how messy liberalism could be at this time, right? It's liberalism that produces this kind of revolutionary uprisings and, uh, and outbreaks of 1820s, 30s that Metternich consistently points out uh, at the mess that it creates. Um, I look at him as, an, as, an, as, as a person um, as an Austrian statesman, which is a unique thing to say, because as we know, he's not necessarily Austrian, right? He was, he belongs to the uh, House of Metternich from from Koblenz, so he's more of a Rhinelandish uh, uh, imperial knight family, um, and and ultimately he becomes the very face of the Austrian conservative edifice, uh, uh, which which again um, is an interesting transformation for a young man like him, uh, a very well-educated man who's studied at some of the best universities in Germany, and then by the end of it, he's the he's the guy who is doing the, his best to stamp out the <laughs> student right uh, freedoms and 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 free uh, free spirit. Let me throw it over to Luke, who now has the opportunity to unleash his previously manacled intellect um, and and land a few sucker punches of his own in response to the, <laughs> the earlier battering he took. You know, I think a lot of the same thing can be said that was that was said about Castlereagh. You know, Metternich is is undeniably another colossus a la Pitt. Um, and I think his greatest achievement is, is keeping Austria as a great power, in all honesty, right? He manages to, as, as Alex points out, Austria gets whooped five times by Napoleon. Um, and then he comes back and tweaks all of this and above all manages a a Viennese settlement that stops Prussia from becoming the great threat that it will eventually become to Austria, right? You know, he balances that absolutely perfectly. You know, this is, this is the problem. This is the problem with Alex. He lands sucker punches and then he picks someone I can't argue against. Um, if he was going for Napoleon, we'd have a we'd have a fight on our hands. But you know, Metternich is, yeah. You know, I again, I I I see where Alex is coming from uh, with his sort of push against liberalism, and we can't forget, right, that even even the most even the staunchest of the constitutional monarchies, Britain and France, were both fundamentally anti eighteen forty eight. Right, they everyone. That's one of the few things after sort of uh, a la chapelle in eighteen eighteen that they all agree on. It's like, no, we're not doing this. Just no. Um, oh yeah, I mean, let's let's remind our British listeners about the Cato Street conspiracy <laughs> or the Peterloo massacre. Right? <laughs> I mean, I would I would like to think that anyone who listens to this podcast and is British knows about the Cato Street conspiracy and the Peterloo massacre uh, already. But if uh, I mean, if you want to talk about that particular. Um, yeah, we can have an entirely different conversation about that and about uh, just, 
you know, bring in my own particular uh, dead horse, the, their use of, of parodies of Waterloo monuments to make their cases. Uh, you, you, I don't know why you're going after me, Alex. I'm fighting your side for you here. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, I'm not going. I'm, I'm just bantering. Come on, man. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. No. And all right, yes, we'll add Peterloo to that ever-extending list in my flowery green book. God and constitution, Alex, God and constitution. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the man, the man did a remarkable job. Um, and I think Vienna as well uh, does, a, it, one of the things that we, that we forget about, right, is, is just how much Vienna takes on Metternich's characteristics, right? It's that whole, you know, this is, this is a man who's, as, as, as Alex quotes, an Adonis of the drawing room, an Adonis of the dance, of, of, of sort of all of that. And I'm reminded of that famous quote by Prince Deline, you know, uh, the Congress does not move forward, it dances. Um, and that is that is Metternich to uh, to a T. Yes, and as as Josh is pro uh, pointing out, also backwards and around and around, right? You know, never up, never down, but always twirling towards freedom. Um, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, Alec. I'm sorry, Zach. The uh, the knockdown dragout fight in the oh, mud, no, no, no. or or in, or in or in the battlefield of Leipzig may have to wait for another day. <laughs> Damn it, Josh. Come on, save the situation. Keep the brawl going. I'm I'm sorry, I can't. Um I first of all, because I'm unqualified to do so, I can somewhat give a give constructive sort of pause to people like Castle Rape, because I've read a great deal about the Duke of Wellington. But I would feel unable to give a, a great deal of criticism to Metternich from what first of all, from what I know of him, he is probably the guy actually that that, that he is the result that this that this debate should land on um him or Talleyrand as far as I'm concerned in a European sense um so no I I would have to say I agree with Alex this is a contender that is uh Napoleonic in his uh <laughs> ability to withstand the attacks of coalitions <laughs> alex is in danger of winning by default here with one contender still to go jackie have you got any counters for metanic um oh, i've got a few things i wanted to say um i mean the first was um the uh, i the first was that i very much enjoyed the talk um and i have to admit that i Metternich was one of the first names that popped into my head when Zach said um, there's going to be a, um, a discussion about great statesmen. Who do you want to pick? And I was kind of, well, I'm not qualified for Metternich anyway. I'm going to go for Pitt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Metternich was definitely one of the names that popped into my head. Talleyrand was the other. Um, the other thing um, I wanted to mention, and this this might be more what Zach's looking for. So <laughs> um, I think the people we've been talking about tonight um so far we talked about three i'm still not sure who josh is going to be talking about that's uh, um i'm not even going to guess uh but the common theme seems to have been right man in the right place at the right time um so um my question to you was uh it would be um given metternich's very long um service and um 
I'm still going to push Pitt slightly here and, and point out that Pitt died at about the same point that Metternich started being big. Um, but um, given Metternich's long service, do you think that he, the problem was that he lasted too long? Yes, um, certainly in terms of the way we, the way contemporaries remembered him, the quote that I read at the, at, at the beginning um, comes actually from 1828. Uh, and things got even worse by the time we get to 1848. So yes, um, if he had retired, so to speak, to, to, to do I don't know what, but if he had retired um, after the last of the Congresses, I think we would have remembered him quite differently from the way we do today because his legacy is overshadowed by the second half, I think, in some respects, the second half of his uh, career. 1830s and 40s were not good to Metternich. Um, right? So if, if, if we talk about him as a great statesman, I think we mean primarily the Napoleonic and immediately post-Napoleonic period rather than later, especially 40s, when he's an old man. Uh, uh, and 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 a man who is 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 really struggling to contain the situation, which is getting out of control. Um, Metternich himself, I think, understood that um, the future generations, you know, kind of will devote um, attention to him, and he was keen, like Napoleon, to shape the perception uh, of of his, or how he they will he will be remembered. Um, he. In, in fact, so that's one of the things that I find interesting is that in the later years after he's kind of over, you know, he's retired, you know, in the 1850s, he spends most of his time actually reminiscing Napoleonic era. Mm. He talks constantly about Napoleon, his meanings, every visitor kind of is indulged a story of, of some sort related to Napoleon. So I look at him as kind of reliving the glory years, but it's also uh, living in the shadow of Napoleon right, in that sense. Um, uh, and of course, the good thing is that he, uh, unlike Castlereagh, let's right, say, or unlike uh, Pitt, uh, Metternich, going back to your uh, comment, uh, Jacqueline, um, because he had a long life, he also could indulge to write long autobiography, leave behind the papers for his son to publish with instructions that they should publish only 20 years after his death. And they do, right? We, we have those 1880s uh, publications that um, are fascinating to kind of look at what he was, how he perceived himself, how he judged himself. Not all of it is, is of course, uh, useful in that sense. And I, it reminds me of great French uh, historian, Albert Sorel, who uh, kind of writes of, of, of uh, Metternich's uh, memoirs that, he dazzled himself with the brightness of a mirror which he held uh, before his eyes. <laughs> right? so, <laughs> um, but having that kind of legacy, um, is, is a written legacy, also helps you uh, or helps us to look at him differently from people like Pitt. I mean, I think the, the the point from both Jacqueline and Alex is well made there, right? That one of that that Metternich's statesmanlike abilities extend to the managing of his own self-image uh yeah and that and that does play a part but there is also you know of course that he you know does he live too long does he serve too long 
Uh, I'm reminded of uh, a quote from the Westmoreland Gazette uh, from uh, 18, uh, in 1829, or Westmoreland Gazette, by the way, was a very conservative paper. Uh, and in the aftermath of um, Wellington effectively sacrificing his premiership on the altar of Catholic emancipation, uh, wrote and um, reported on, on the anniversary of Waterloo that uh, no ensign waved over any public buildings had the hero of that blood-stained day fallen in the arms of victory, the laurel would have bloomed long green and fresh over his tomb and the tears of his affectionate country would have bedewed his grave. But now another fate awaits him from posterity. We presume this ceremony to, in honor of him, and that's italicized, will be omitted in other places as well as in Kendall. And it is, it's that, it's that, uh, it's that feeling, right? You know, the greatest achievements, Politicians, politicians are also victims of the "you're only as great as your last battle" syndrome, uh, and and I think Metternich, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff we're we're trying to beat him with had he had he died in say 1840, a lot of that ammunition just goes right out the window. Yeah, and and I think Metternich, if we had a chance to talk to him, which would have been amazing. Um, he would himself would have admitted that the I think eighteen up to eighteen twenty is the prime of his public life, and then what follows is the protracted epilogue that he had to engage in with against his to a certain degree kind of against his own wish. He always looked himself as a custodian, kind of the high priest of the status quo. Uh, that's how he perceived, um, and. Um, I think the events of the quote that you provided it, it suits per, you know very well that legacy, especially the later half of it. Right? How would how we would remember him uh, if he had retired in eighteen twenties? We would have remembered him as this remarkable diplomat, statesman who outwitted Napoleon, brought Austria out of Napoleonic wars, and then went on to enjoy his life. But that's not we kind of that's not the history. The histories of him shamefully escaping from. Vienna, right, disparaged, um, condemned, and, and vilified. To be honest, if Alex. he had stopped in, in 1825, I think would probably be, you know, sort of saying, what was the matter with him? Why didn't he carry on? Think about what else he there could have done. There is that. There is absolutely that. Uh, my question is, uh, Alex, when are we getting a, um, a Metternich biography from you with the subtitle, The High Priest of the Status Quo? Can I also just say on this thing of going on too long, that's probably just like the byline for this podcast, quite frankly. You know, I tell my guests, look, it'll be a 90 minute thing. Each guest only has like five minute pitch and then there'll be questions afterwards. And then, you know, two hours later, we're still at it. <laughs> and speaking of biography, no, uh, uh, there is no way anyone can be, uh, at least in the foreseeable future, uh, Wolfram Siemens' wonderful new biography, which is Metronique strategist and visionary. There are a lot of things that uh, I kind of had to reassess when I read um, I read that book because Metronich was my favorite whipping boy until then and I was like, oh, let me <laughs> let me tone it down a bit. And then Zach comes in and is like, can you defend him? And I, <laughs> so I find myself in a very different corner now. <laughs> this is what being on this show does to you people. Take note and never come anywhere near it. And now we come to the one which is going to blow all of our minds. 
I mean, that's that's not bigging him up much. So no pressure, Josh. But you texted me about this and said, you know, I'm considering this one. What do you think? And I just went, do it, do it. It's essential because you're going to take our cozy Eurocentric perspective and drive a wrecking ball through the thing, but not in a Miley Cyrus kind of way. I hasten to emphasize. Um, Josh, your contender is? I don't know if any of anybody listening or if anybody in this chat room will, you know, in this call will know who this is. I, I will be delighted if you do. I didn't know who he was till I wrote my book. But is if uh, does the name Nana Fadnavis mean anything to you? No. <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting negative responses visually. So here we go. Can I just say I'm pretty prepared to bet the house on the fact that all of my guests are now on Wikipedia. <laughs> Who is it's, this guy? Because okay. now I need to ask an intelligent question. And this is so left field that I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, so, you know, as on brand with me, you know, I, I given and just given this evening's theme, you might have thought someone like Maurice de Talleyrand would would be the man to go with. And he, he was a gifted politician and operator, diplomatist and a man who ensured that France remained a powerful player in Europe after the fall of Napoleon and doing so, as we've said this evening, with the weakest card, with the weakest hand in the game. Um, that was my first choice actually um but you don't want to he hear me talk about someone like that do you really me i mean why else would i come on this show if not to champion someone who you've never heard of who is borderline expected this is borderline expected of me right someone who is borderline not even qualifiable for the competition you know because he he dies in 1800 <laughs> but i have zach's permission to ruin everything <laughs> because more than anything I got I, it was like two or three days before uh we were going to do this and I, I started to have doubts on myself whether I could do Talleyrand justice to start with because I I'm probably not qualified to dig that deep into such a complicated man and I think there are other people who can do that better so I thought okay who else could I do I'm not doing Wellington on principle um <laughs> So I thought of this chap that I wrote about very briefly in my book. Now, this I felt more than anything allowed me to show a statesman who saved his country much like Metternich in Tehran, but is far removed from the European sphere. And as I said, his name is Nana Fadnavis, and he was born in 1742 to a well-connected family of Brahmins in India. His birth name was actually Balaji Janardhan Banu, and Nana is a nickname, a family nickname, and Fadnavis is the title of a high minister of state, which was inherited from his grandfather. Now, Nana was a little bit like Pitt in that he died in, the, in 1800, so he's much more associated with the revolutionary period or time zone than the other people discussed in this series. He's also... Um, somewhat like Pitt in the sense that he was always destined for a high government position or something important because his family had close ties with the um, 
the Peshwa, which is the leader of the Maratha Confederacy, which was a dominant military and political entity in, in central and northern India uh, through most of the 18th century. And Nana was educated alongside the Peshwa's sons, actually, showing, and he showed a keen intelligence and an aptitude for mathematics at a fairly young age. So he was definitely going to be Im important. He was going to have an important job. Now, this was... Um, this this ties in quite well with his his well known uh, name, the title of Fadnavis, uh, which is how he's known today. Uh, he not only became the Peshwa's finance minister, but his chief minister. Nana was among the cadre of nobles who rose to power after the Marathas were decisively defeated at the Third Battle of Panipat in 1761, securing the capital of Pune and ensuring the survival of the Peshwa's government through three successive Peshwas between 1761 and 1774, when the infant Madhavrao II succeeded to the Masnod, which is the throne. The period between 1774 and 1796 saw the Marathas return to their former power. During this time, Nana, who along with a Regency Council of Brahmins controlled the young ruler, also controlled most aspects of diplomacy and finance, masterfully manipulating the complicated politics of the quarreling leaders of the great houses of the Confederacy, restoring the stability of the state that it seemingly had no right to. That in 10 years between Panipat and 1771, it was as if there had never been a defeat on the scale that was suffered at the Third Battle of Panipat. Alongside him, in bringing the Marathas back from their decline was Nana's rival Mahadaji Shinde, who the British called Sindhya. And between them, they reasserted the dominance of the Confederacy in northern India. Nana, however, always shied from the spotlight, unlike Mahadaji, and though wielding great political power, never exceeded his public duties as a servant of the Peshwa. And actually, both of them liked to play that game. In fact, there's a story about Mahadaji, who was known as Old Patil, which is the which is a sort of a lowly village headman. His official job was sandal bearer in the court, and he always used to show up with a pair of sandals to show that he was just a servant and not, you know, like one of the most powerful men in the Confederacy. But this is the game people played. Now, Nana's greatest success was not only keeping private quarrels from becoming national crises, he was also deft at avoiding any entanglements with the British, those lovable people. For the entire period after the First Maratha War and through the Brahman Regency, a succession of governor generals tried and failed to exert some kind of influence over the Marathas. But though the rivals of the guardianship of the Peshwa didn't agree with each other, this is basically, you know, Mahadaji and Nana, they both agreed that the British had to be kept at arm's length. They knew that this to be true because they had both tried to coordinate a ground alliance themselves uh, between themselves, Hyderabad and Mysore in the 1780s that came within a hair's breadth of breaking British power in India. But this alliance of feuding states had faltered under the pressure and they basically lost faith in the idea of kicking the British out. And so they decided they were just trying to stay away from them as much as possible. So Nana, therefore, followed this path of neutrality and maintained a cool sort of friendly attitude to the British, even joining forces with them against uh, Mysore in the third war against that state, though ensuring that they did uh, only a bare minimum to actually assist militarily. There was therefore reason to think that um, 
there was uh, time to build a strong bulwark against the IC. As Sir John Shaw's administration in India was a conservative one and operated a much more pacific policy. As such, Nana had room to oversee the high point of late Bharata power when the Confederacy went to war with the Nizam of Hyderabad in 1795, a fight in which the British stayed aloof. By this time, Nana's rival and opposite pillar of the Maratha state, uh, the great Mahadaji, had been succeeded by a brash and youthful man named Dalit Trao, uh, who would play a great role in the future course of the state, but left Nana as the great old man of the Confederacy, and the Hyderabadis and the Marathas clashed at the Battle of Kadla in March, and it is a particularly Indian battle, and it's a very a fascinating one. You can read about it in William Dalrymple's book, uh, White Mughals. Um, it wasn't very decisive, but strategically, the Marathas won a convincing victory, which the Nizam had to siege, uh, cede large swathes of territory and pay a humiliating indemnity. Uh, eight months after this triumph, however, the young Peshwa Madhavrao II uh, threw himself in despair from the upper floor of the Shanuwarwada in Pune and died. And in his place came another young man, much in this mold of Dalit Rao Shinde, named Bajirao II. Despite the great victory over Hyderabad and Nana being foresighted enough to avoid entanglements with the British, he realized too late that by allowing Mysore, the Confederacy's great enemy, to be targeted and Hyderabad weakened, and both reduced eventually to British subsidiaries, a new balance of power would bring his state and the East India Company into confrontation. New Governor General Richard Wellesley hatched a plan to gain a British monopoly on both trade and administration of the Indian powers, and anyone who stood in his way was asking for a fight. When news arrived at the fall of, of Seringapatam in 1799, and the death of Tipu Sultan, which would inevitably mean the restoration of the pro-British Wadia dynasty in Mysore. Nana told the Peshwa, and I quote, Tipu is finished. The British power has increased. The whole of East India is already theirs. Pune will now be the next victim. Evil days are ahead. There seems to be no escape from destiny. These were the words of Nana when he was in his late 50s, a year or so before he died. And at this time, his great successes were behind him. And he died after a short illness in March 1800, after having been uh, toppled by a coup after Bajirao allied with Daudatrao Shinde and removed him from power. The death of Nana Fadnavis brought another round of scheming and plotting to Maratha politics. The stabilizers of the state were now all gone and anarchy was about to be unleashed. He was 58 years old when he died, still refusing to take an active or public, at least, role in government, though he had always been a tireless worker, amassing a huge archive of administrative papers. His energy had been seeping away for a long time. And by the spring of 1799, he was an isolated, alienated and all but broken man, seen as a pathetic and feverish figure shuffling to and from uh, a temple in Pune. Now, when he did die, all agreed that the government of the Pune Raj had ceased to have any validity, really. The British resident at Pune, General Palmer, said, and quote, all the wisdom and moderation departed with his passing. I think this makes him a remarkable statesman of this period in history. And he would be, and he deserves to be better known, even though he was not a European. 
And this is why we left Josh to the end to just go and throw a nuke into this discussion and really mess with your heads and take you out of that European mindset, which is exactly why I wanted to do it this way. Because suddenly the rest of us in the room are kind of looking around going, hmm, this changes your perspective a bit, doesn't it? Um, so brilliantly played, Josh. It is hard to argue this one in one particular sense in that it all goes to hell for the Marathas immediately after he dies. You know, it, we were just talking about sort of the Metanic goes on too long, does he or doesn't he? Um, for this guy, you know, that it feels like there's a watershed, you know, he dies and then everything falls apart. That, that's an exaggeration, but it is nonetheless, you can draw that kind of line because obviously in the, the years that follow, you have Wellesley's future Wellington's campaigns. Um, you've then got subsequent, the third, um, um, the, the, the name of the conflict escapes me. The third the Anglo-Maratha War. Thank you. There we go. Good job somebody knows what they're talking about here <laughs> you know I'm, a, I'm only the one who's applying to do a postdoc in um the history of the indian subcontinent but we'll you know skedaddle quickly over that fact um because it, it all goes to hell you kind of feel okay here is the steady hand on the tiller um of the the maratha confederacy and without him um the apocalypse happens um I wonder if the case can be made, though, that here we have a diplomat, an exceptionally gifted and sensible and influential diplomat, as opposed to a statesman, in part because of what you're saying about that sort of lack of inclination to sort of hold, inverted commas, public office, such as it exists um, in the Indian subcontinent at that moment in time. What's your response to that? He, as I, I, I've compared him a few times to Pitt, and he has this sort, and he has another sort of um, similarity in that sense that he is very sort of civil service. He's very into the runnings of how things work and keeping them working. And uh, certainly when he gets control of uh, the regency in Madhavrao, he has forced basically by circumstance and the moves that he's he's made to secure the country because it's all tied into um Bajirao's father actually running away to the British and saying oh no I've been I've been un, you know kicked out of my throne please come and help me um which is exactly what Bajirao the second has as well which starts the Maratha war um he is he's given control basically of of the Peshwa and so He's no longer just a civil servant. He is essentially make, calling the shots in the country. And it's not a terribly, terribly comfortable position for him, but he does do it. He, he's, he's not famous as a diplomatist particularly. He's much more known as a, as a statesman, um, but probably not an all-round statesman. Luke, I'm going to hand it over to you. Yeah, I think Zach's point is, is well taken about things going to hell when he died. But the point I want to, the, the, the thing I want to prod you on, uh, Josh, is, is you sort of very clear, you, you very uh, carefully 
mentioned it but skipped over it, clearly hoping none of us would pick up on it. Um, who knows? Who knows if he if if this is the case? But by staying out, uh, or indeed even helping the British and Hyderabad eventually wipe the floor with Mysore and end Seringapatam, he does fundamentally guarantee that they turn on him next. They're not him, but the Marathas next. He, he guarantees um, uh, English sort of domination of the southern portion of the subcontinent, which of course, as we all know, eventually leads to English domination of the subcontinent because, um, yeah, the British don't go backwards much. Um, and and I, this is this is the point that's sticking with me, right? Is 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 that and 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 you mentioned that sort of that that near confederacy that almost breaks the English, right? And I'm 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 immediately and I apologize, but I am going back to Europe in this. But I'm thinking of the first coalition, the second coalition, the third coalition, and Pitt and Metternich. Uh, see these coalitions shatter, right? The thrice fourth damned coalition. And they go, no, we need to keep doing this. And they do keep doing this. And it takes a lot of them, <laughs> but it does work. And I think that's, I, I don't, I don't want to, I mean, this is a problem, right? It is, it is a group of, of white men and women, no offense, Jacqueline, sitting around talking about, you know, European, European statesmen and immediately dismissing uh, the, the, the Maratha when he comes up. But I do, I do want to push you on this and hear your pushback on this, mm -hmm. on, on this sort of, you know, this moment of giving up on the Confederacy and then in a way, accidentally, even if it is, signing Maratha's own death warrant. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that is a valid point, and it is is quite clear in a sort of a in in, in the you know the the glorious light of hindsight that um, by allowing the British to isolate the Marathas as a single chunk you're essentially setting yourself up as a target. Unfortunately, I don't think it was entirely clear at the time that this would be the case. Like I say, the, the third Mysore war occurred, um, the, they were, the Marathas were very reluctant partners in that. Um, the history of the Marathas and uh, Mysore itself is very complicated as well because they were enemies. You know, people think, uh, have this sort of impression that India could search just sort of clicked, made a click and everybody joins together as, you know, Hindu brothers and, you know, children of the soil stuff sort of thing. Um, but it just would have been, it was just such a difficult thing to do. I mean, there is similes in Europe, of course, with old enemies joining together to, to defeat Napoleon. And the revolution and things like that, but there, are, but the, but India lacked. India seemed to lack this Napoleon figure that people could unite against. The East India Company was much too much of an arbitrary concept to unite the various powers of India against it. Um, they were much more keen on either allying with it to defeat their older enemies, or um, 
short-term alliances to gain small gains from them. Mm -hmm. And Nana's, Nana picked his battles fairly carefully. You know, the third Mysore war, like I say, the Marathas got in, uh, you know, the, the British were not happy with the Marathas in the, in the in the third Mysore war, even though they said that they couldn't have, you know, fought it without them. Um, because they just didn't, they didn't produce what the British wanted them to, and they had no intention of doing so either, really. They just went to raid and plunder and stuff, because as well, the Maratha state is, was built on a system of uh, a, a kind of like a large-scale protection racket. The surrounding countries had to offer them a tax, um, or they would be raided, and in return for that tax, they could de depend on Maratha support and that is also a problem you know nana was dealing with a particular type of state in a, in a in a particular form that was that was made and emerging from probably at that time a specific model it was very well suited for small wars of um monetary and uh, territorial acquisition, as was fought against Hyderabad, uh, which was done, like I say, very carefully and, and calculated in, in, a, in a calculated way, because at that time, the British really weren't pushing anything. So it felt safe to do that. And then Richard Wellesley appears on the scene, and everything goes mad. And unfortunately, unfortunately, to Pooh Falls, Hyderabad goes over to the, the British, and Nana dies. So does Ma and Mahadaji Sindhya is dead before the Battle of Kardla. So this is it's it's very unlucky for the state that although Nana was very foresighted, um, even if he saw it coming, I'm not really sure what he could have done uh, because, like you say, coalitions just didn't tend to work. Yeah, what what comes across very strongly for me is that you know the Indians are uh, the Indian states are trying to play what is fundamentally a continuation of the Indian diplomacy game, which is slightly different to the sort of, um, the way in which geopolitical machinations work in Europe. Whereas the Brits just aren't prepared to play that game. They're, they see things on a completely different um, plane to what um, the, the, the locals are, are thinking. And in the process, Britain sort of ends up playing the blinder of a divide and conquer strategy um, in the process. And the, there's almost sort of no dealing with that. It's almost that sort of, that mentality, kind of to what you were saying earlier, Luke, that why do the coalitions work in the end? Because they learn to strategize and fight like Napoleon. Well, the way in which the Indian nations would have won against the British and the EIC is to strategize like the British and the EIC, which is an entirely different way of thinking. And they just don't have the opportunity to do that before it's all over, fundamentally. Yeah, Jackie. I, think, I think there's an aspect of, of who is negotiating in good faith and what the end goal is. And that is a huge problem. Uh, and the Brits are certainly not the ones negotiating in good faith during this point. Jackie, let me bring you in. Oh, I really enjoyed that. Um, I. I don't. I didn't know anything about Nana um, at all. I, I, I know a little bit about 18th century um, 
India. Um, but for some reason, he didn't come up in my readings. So <laughs> that's a hole in my knowledge plugged. Um, but I, I, I particularly like how this is a counterpoint to what we've all been talking about, because we've all been talking about statesmen um, at war against an imperial power. And uh, well, we're still talking about statesmen at war against an imperial power. Only this time it's... Uh, um, <laughs> Napoleon's not the bad guy. Um, <laughs> um, and I, I, I think we need reminding more, actually, that um, there aren't, there are more, there's more than one bad guy in this game. <laughs> and um, this story really does bring that round particularly given what happens after Nana's death of course because uh, it's a slippery slope isn't it um and um of course you, you mentioned Richard Wellesley um brother of uh, um Dick Wellington um, <laughs> um I'm not entirely sure that any Indian statesman could have really done anything even if they had banded together a little bit more. I'm, 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 I think the odds were rather different in India than they were in Europe. Um, yeah. And I think they were very much stacked against um, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Indian forces. Um, so I'm not really sure how much we can fault Nana for um, making the wrong choices. I mean, I, th I think all statesmen make the wrong choices occasionally. Some make fewer wrong choices than others, and they tend to be the ones who rise to the top. Um, my question, I guess, would be, how much of a difference do you think he could have made had he not died when he did? Um, because he really did die at a very important juncture. Um, do you think that he might have made a difference? I mean, this is a really woolly question. I'm really <laughs> sorry. I, I hate these what if questions. But I mean, if he hadn't died in 1808, uh, 1800, and, and uh, he, he might well have lived longer. Could he have stalled things? I really don't think he could have changed a great deal, but you know, hmm. could he could could he have learnt from from what had happened and made any impact? That's an excellent question, and I had briefly so, sort of pondered it myself because a lot of the question of his greatness somewhat rests on as he everybody seems to think that everything took a downward spiral once he died and to be honest with you if i was able to tell you the rest of the story you would see absolutely everything goes to hell um i mean internally to begin with just civil war breaks out amongst the marathas um and that is the great weakness that the british seize upon and if anything i think that is what he could have avoided if he had been able to stay in power so i think yes i think he could have delayed British intervention, as the Marathas had been able to all the way up into this point, and that, in, that includes fighting the first Maratha war, which actually went quite well for the Marathas, the second, and and obviously surviving the war, the wars with the various other states uh, in the intervening period, inter, intervening period, without the British involving themselves again. So I think the best way to answer that was that from from what I have read about him if he and indeed if his rival and sort of opposite number uh mahadaji had lived longer um then there would have been no civil war within the maratha territory and no opening for the british to just openly go and 
fight them because uh, the thing to remember is the second Maratha war, the, the one that Arthur, our, our Arthur gets involved in, didn't start because of just an outright Richard Wellesley saying, right, go fight the Marathas now, we've got rid of Tipu. It was Bajirao getting unseated in that civil war, running to the British and saying, I will be your subsidiary if you put me back on the throne. And if Nana was still in charge, there's no way that was ever going to happen. It's been a it's mighty a, discussion. Um, yeah. It really has. I'm hesitant to extend it even longer, <laughs> but I'm going to anyway, because I'm an evil individual. Um, just in literally 30 seconds or less, honourable mentions, and feel free at this point to turn it on its head and think about what about greatest states women should you feel so inclined? So an obvious contender, for example, would be Marie Walewska um, for her role in sort of badgering Napoleon into this concept of actually, yes, uh, a Polish nation of sorts is in your interests. And thanks to her, I would make the case that actually Poland can, can thank her for a significant kind of chapter in her history. And that's no, by no means to say that you know, the, the concept of Polish nationalism starts with Marie Wlewska or ends with her. Of course it doesn't. There's a far longer history um, that, that predates her and, and succeeds her. And obviously the Vienna settlement sees the concept of, of a Polish nation just being completely hurled out of the window. Um, but that would be my sort of suggestion of to what extent could you make the case for her? That's my 30 seconds. Let me go around the room and give you the opportunity to make your pitches. Luke? Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe. Oh, he went for two. You've got to justify those. I will. Uh, Jefferson, much like the general theme of this podcast, uh, has some deeply problematic uh, 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 personal views and uh, domestic policies, but the man doubles the size of the United States of America uh, by seizing on problems with Europe and negotiating them really well. Uh, simultaneously and following on from that, and in fairness, you know, Monroe is, is folded into that as well, uh, Monroe seizes on the end of the Napoleonic Wars and all of that and the War of 1812 and goes, right, guess what? You guys all have sphere of influences. We have spheres of influence too. We're taking all of South America, which <laughs> also fundamentally, uh, you know, is one of the reasons that the European nations stay out of those states and allow the South American republics to emerge. I am not at all saying that, you know, uh, all of those states owe their existence to the Americans and to James Monroe. That is a deeply problematic state statement. But there comes a point where white politicians only listen to other white politicians, and James Monroe was that white politician at the right time. Powerful case made there. Jackie? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, I've been racking my brains for a woman, and... Um, I think it's a little unfair given that women were systematically excluded uh, from the political system from the very start. So you're kind of left with aristocrats and monarchs, um, really, if you're going to 
I'll be looking at anyone who's a woman who had any clout of any kind. So I'm going to just be a complete rebel and say Mary Wollstonecroft because she wasn't a statesman, um, but she also wasn't an aristocrat and she wasn't a queen. And I think she's had a lasting impact on um, thought and women's rights. And uh, um, basically, I think she was a good one. And if she had gone into politics, she would have kicked ass. So there you go. Pitts would have been worried, put it that way. <laughs> Josh, um, in I, I will I will first of all say that uh, obviously I would have I would have championed Talleyrand if I had a functioning brain. So technically, that means that is my choice, but I I can't say that because it's, you know we've already talked about him. Um, Can I just say if you go Manuel Godoy? I, ha I have many questions. I would and... so love to. Unfortunately, I can't defend it. He's a fascinating guy, and I think we should talk about him more. I almost wanted to try and give you know a shot at talking about Godoy, but uh, he's kind of he's kind of the reason Napoleon in, got into Spain. So um, probably even worse of a <laughs> choice than I picked. Uh, much less respect for Godoy. Anyway, I think. No, please let's do it. Let's please let's do an episode about him, and we'll talk about him. But um, no, I'm going to go with um, for a woman, Madame de Stael, um, who is closest woman I can get to, maybe barring um, uh, Princess Leaven, uh, to to that sort of level possibly the possibly the queen of prussia um depending on when you're talking about it um and for a man uh i'm forgetting my dates at the second but i'm very i'm very tempted to say tecumseh Ooh. that is a, no yeah that's that's a completely legit legit shout mm -hmm. approving nods around the room there yes that's Oh, that was a good one to end on. Um, wow. Firstly, thank you all. Yes, mic drop. Quite rightly so, Josh. Um, people, if you want more on to come, so we did a whole episode on Native Americans in the War of 1812 that gives you a much better grounding on why that is a clangor upon which to end part one. A massive thank you to my guests. Oh, my goodness. King Kamehameha. <sighs> No, look, you can't have two mic drops in one episode. That that's just that's just greedy. Stop it, Josh. Why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> oh, good You've grief! Said it now. He's actually You've more successful than Napoleon. Uh, if we're if we're extending it back a little bit into the Revolutionary Age as well, uh, Jane Adams is a good shout. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, you need to stop us now, Zach. Yes, yeah. I am. I'm going to finally put my foot down and call time on what has been a mammoth two and a half hours people this was part one right i mean this is why i haven't mushed parts one and two into a single episode because we'd break the all time quite frankly and have a five hour long episode and i honestly don't think anybody would listen to the full five hours so we've gone for two parts on this one you will want to come back for part two of course you will you're going to need to head over to the patreon page for that one that will be coming out in february However, in the meantime, a massive, massive thank you to my guests this evening who have thoroughly entertained you. 
Luke, author of Who Owned Waterloo, available at Oxford University Press. You are on Twitter. I am at, indeed, uh, at uh, Lurinol, L-U-R-E-Y-N-O-L. There we go. Jackie, author of The Late Lord, The Life of John Pitt, Second Earl Chatham, biography of Popham incoming at some point in what we hope will be the soon future, but don't bust a blood vessel trying to get it done because I can imagine the challenge that it is. You're on Twitter at the late Lord. Uh, late, yes, it's after that or the late Lord Chatham. Late Lord Chatham, be, I think. I think it might be late Lord Chatham. No, the, okay. yeah, all one okay. word, I think. Folks, I should know, it's the, my own name, isn't it? I, I know, this is, <laughs> this is why I feel vindicated. You know, you don't know your own Twitter handle, so... You know, it's acceptable for me not well, to. Well, I, I don't tweet myself very often, so. <laughs> there is that. There is that. That's probably what you're doing wrong, Jackie. You know, Twitter is all about the narcissism. Mm, um, you're right. I'm writing about Popham. I mean, he's yelling at me right now, saying, "Come on!" Popham wants to change the Twitter handle, Jackie. You know, you have to. Give he does. Him to him he does. Um, but anyway, folks, I will in the show descriptor uh, underneath this. I will put the details of where you can follow these people. Um, Alex is is on Twitter. He's gone for the traditional at a Mika Britta. He's had to dash off, which is why you haven't heard him um, in the, the final part of this. It is his birthday. I think we'll let him off that one. Um, but boy, oh boy, do you need to go and buy yourselves copies of The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History and of A Life in War and Peace. He's also written a book on the Berezina. Yes, I am seriously considering an episode on that as part of the long list in my pink and flowery book um, full of green leaves and good ideas. And last but by no means least, Josh, Master of Adventures in History Land, author of Bullocks, Crane and Good Madeira, also the author of Wild East, if you've got an interest for things outside of the Napoleonic era. And Josh is on Twitter at Land of History, I believe. Correct, yes. There we go. I got one of them right at the very least. Folks, thank you all so much for your time. I would say come back again very soon, but frankly, after this one, I very much doubt you're going to want to. But thank you for a fantastic first part. Hello folks, one quick favour to ask. Head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a stellar review. It's one of those things that you can do that takes up just a few moments of your time but makes a massive difference in terms of the reach of this show. A big thank you, as ever, to all of my patrons but I'm going to particularly shout out Arboreal237 and Nick GX, who in the last month have both left five-star stellar reviews of the show. It's great to know that you're enjoying the content that's going out. Shout-outs as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Mention in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, and Natasha Hobday. The Admirals, who are joining me every month now for meetups, David Priest, Rob Cochlan, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, and Michael Guest. The Marshals, who get to request their own content, Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, David Maxwell and Juo Teixeira, The Emperor, JC Kaiser 
and last but by no means least, the Legion de Scholars who are enjoying the benefits of effectively an online course, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.